One night, I was sitting on the bed in my hotel room on Bunker Hill, down in the middle of Los Angeles. It was an important night in my life because I had to make a decision about the hotel. Either I paid up or I got out. That was what the note said, the note the landlady had put under my door. A great problem, deserving acute attention. I solved it by turning out the lights and going to bed. John Fanti, Ask the Dust. take a deep dive into one of the works of controversial author Brett Easton Ellis. I am your host, Katie Wright, and joining me this week, who baby, am I excited? It's host of many podcasts. Oh God, so many, so (laughs) many, more than I can bear to imagine. (laughs) Uh, And also, um, in in a way, my my podcast boss slash father. (laughs) Uh, Okay, wow, all right, yeah. Um, you see, when two people love each other very much, sometimes they buy a microphone and it turns into a podcast. I don't know where this is going, and I don't know who my uh, partner in uh, podcast sexual congress it would have been to birth you in this, but... Oh, wow. Digging myself in a real deep hole here. <laughs> I'm sorry I did this to you. That was my fault for Hi. calling you my podcast father. It's Tom Lockney. Hi, I'm Tom Lockney, the victim of this ambush <laughs> that I agreed to be a part of. So not really an ambush, more of like my own my own public uh, uh, flogging. <laughs> yeah. So you um, you host many podcasts yes. here on the Major Casts Network. Absolutely, I and do. you are also one of the founders of the Major Cast Network. I am, which is why I described you as my podcast as, father, as, as your podcast papa. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I co-host Media Majors, a storytelling podcast about media, uh, major media. I like the realms of video games and internet culture, but I'm not a, I'm not terrible. I promise. Um, and we are experts at comedy podcasts where me and two other dumb chuckle fucks talk bullshit about nothing because we, we pick a topic we don't know about. And I also host King Me, which is kind of like this podcast about um, Stephen King, yeah. who is uh, amazingly like if Brett Easton Ellis was restrained. <laughs> In any way. There are some similarities. Yeah. I'm really excited to have you on, not only because um, you're my dear friend and I adore you, but because you host your own book podcast. So I feel like I have so much to learn from you. Oh, Like I'm going to leave this a much better book podcaster than I came in. Well, let's let's see things that you should learn. One, make a total ass of yourself on your friend's podcast. Two, refer to yourself as podcast papa. And three, <laughs> um, just sound and come across like a huge dumbass. <laughs> In fairness, I called you. I, I opened the door to the whole podcast papa thing, so that's not on you. That's absolutely fair. <laughs> this is not to a roaring start. Yeah, we're crushing it. <laughs> Tom. Katie? <laughs> We're talking about the informers today. Yeah, we are. Um, before we jump into the informers, uh, I I took a, a page from your book podcast book. Oh boy, no, that's a disaster. You know the phrase "take a, a page take from a your page book." From your book, yeah. Mm. Took a page um, out of your 
I can't figure it out either. Yes. Oh, man. So the first thing I want to talk about is your history with Brady Stanellis, if uh, one exists. Uh, none. Thought that... Well, I have seen American Psycho, obviously, because I was a teenager in the, in the like, mid to late 2000s, and when that movie got, like, it's big. I feel like that movie had, like, a big film, like film bro revival of like whoa like but there's this movie from the 80s and it's really fucking good or whatever yeah um like they people thought it was from the 80s and i and i mistook uh uh brett easton ellis uh, for the as the same guy who wrote chuck uh chuck palianic mm-hmm. who wrote fight club yeah. i thought that they were the same person for a very long time uh this is the first brett easton ellis book that i've ever read it's a weird one to start off on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's like you dive in a pool and you're like, this is blue Gatorade? Like, it looks right, but this feels weird. And now I'm all sticky. <laughs> um, so you've not read any Brady Stanellis before. Correct, yeah. Did you have kind of like an idea of him I, or of his books going in? I knew who he was. I'd obviously heard the story that like that Christian Bale's mom fucking hated American Psycho and was like, if you do this movie, like, I'm not going to talk to you. I believe it's his stepmom who is the famous feminist Gloria Steinem. Yes. Um, And that also that the, because after I saw the movie, I like did some Wikipedia researching when I was a kid. And I did, I do know that the the book is like a lot more uh, graphic and mean spirited, particularly towards women. Um, So let me tell you, I was still, despite knowing that, completely fucking unprepared for some of the content that was in this little, this little number. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, let's jump in. Let's start talking about some of that content. Absolutely, I love content. <laughs> content is so good. Yeah, content. It's, content is what gets me, keeps me going. I get out of the bed every day and I pour myself a steaming cup of content. <laughs> All right, so. The book opens on, uh, first of all, this book, is this a collection of short stories or a novel? That's what Wikipedia says. Wikipedia says it is a a collection of short stories. I think that that is technically true, that that they are short stories about, but they're all about characters in the same space. Like, when I was reading this, I kept thinking of, of, um, have you seen, like, Trick or Treat? It's like a horror anthology film, and it all takes place in the same town, and all the stories are interwoven. Like, that movie has problems, but I think that it's, like, a very well-executed, like, ah, this is, like, a world. We're we're building the world, and, like, there's all these spooky things that are happening on this one night in this one place, and they're, like, significant and play off of each other. And I thought that that was, like, really good. I thought that this is, like, theoretically doing the same thing, where it's, like, yeah, they all live in Los Angeles, and they're all terrible people, and they all interact with each other terribly, but it's... It's very hard to like parse, I think it would be the right word, you know? Yeah. Par- yeah. Parse like why why these stories or like why yeah. why we care. Just like why these people are not why they're connected because obviously there's like in-world reasoning for it, but just like why are we why are these the stories and they do all take place for the most part in Los Angeles, but like they're they're so spread out and sprawling and not in a way because LA is like spread out and sprawling. And that's, that's like a very large part of good LA fiction, like lots of like noir and neo-noir and stuff. But like, 
this just sort of felt like a bunch of disparate ideas, some uh, more uh, individual and like unique than the rest. Lots of people having affairs and that's lots of <laughs> short stories about people who are just like, I don't love my partner. So I'm having sex with somebody else. Um, so it didn't feel like a very cohesive and like contained anthology even. And, and, but, but the short stories aren't disconnected enough for me to be like, this is a collection of short stories. So it kind of exists in this weird limbic space, you know? Yeah, I agree. This is like a book that doesn't quite know what it is. And I've seen like official looking descriptions, like on, on Amazon, at the library, on the back cover, call it both a short story collection and a novel. So like, I feel like not even the publishing world knows what it is. Yeah. And, and, and like, as the, as the resident, like Stephen Kinger here, like, yeah, Stephen King sometimes throws like throwaway lines. Like, um, I read, uh, uh, the body stand by me based on recently. And, um, he makes reference to how like Cujo exists in, in the world of that story, but it's just like one throwaway line. And it's also to an entire fucking novel. Like it's to a whole damn ass story as opposed to this like weird reference to like, Oh yeah. Like this kid's dad who is like a sex predator also is like knows this other band guy or like this, this news anchor, and they are related somehow, but we're not really exploring it, but there are, they are related, but they are related. And it's like, but so is this the same story or is it not Brett? Like, come on, man. Yeah. And most, most of Brett's, you don't know this because this is the only Brett Easton Ellis book you've ever read, but most of his books are kind of interconnected in a very like Stephen King like way. Like there's clearly a Brett Easton Ellis literary universe. universe. A mythos. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, characters from other books pop up in every single Brett Easton Ellis novel. But usually we're, we have like one or at most like three narrators and we're like focusing on them and their lives. And then it's just like, oh, and Clay from Less Than Zero's here. Um, but this is the only book that is like just kind of weirdly trying to tie like 40 characters into each other and doing it like really lazily. Yeah. It's, it doesn't quite for a while. And, and this is why I, I found the book hard to parse is just cause like for the first like two or three chapters, cause going in, I had no idea that it was a collection of short stories. I thought it was one contiguous book and I, I did eventually realize that the perspectives were switching. Cause I was like, okay, wait, no, no, no. There's like, there are like definitely different gender terms for like the 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 POV character being used right now, and like that was what eventually tipped me off. And even then, I I was still like, oh, this is like a really interesting structural choice because I know that he uh, is a gay man, and and especially one who has like a very complicated history with his sexuality. That's the one thing I did because I did do a little re research on him beforehand, um, and do know a little bit about. How complicated of a of a I don't think it excuses a lot of the stuff in this novel, but like how very complicated of a life he led as a as a gay man in the closet. Like I can fucking relate. Um, uh, and I thought it was a structural ploy to be like, well, you can't write an explicitly gay POV character necessarily in the well. I mean, like he, I guess he does in slight ways, but but like more as a way to get a heterosexual audience, which he is by God writing for, um, 
to decenter them and like have them inhabit characters that they maybe didn't want to or didn't expect to without catching on right away. And by the time they did, it would be too late. And then I realized that he was just kind of like, you know, throwing Jackson Pollock paint at the wall, you know, seeing what stuck. So you thought he was making a cool artistic choice and then you realized that he was not. Yeah, exactly. Which is, <laughs> which is one of the most crushing things <laughs> that can happen to you when you're consuming a piece of art. Yeah, that's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, these are pretty disconnected stories, just vaguely connected by the characters knowing each other. So we have more to say about some of them than about others. Yeah. So I'm just going to open with the first, the first story that we open on is called Bruce Calls from Mulholland. And Bruce is a guy. We don't really get information about who he is. It's just Bruce, which is a, th- a thing that brett does kind of a lot i feel like he'll just he'll just be like yeah bruce is here kim is here and like not really introduce you to the world or like who anybody is yeah and this whole thing is just a phone call that i honestly like i reread it today trying to be like okay what is the point of this story and why is this what we open on and i really don't know well uh, katie the point (laughs) of the story is that the book also ends with a story about bruce and that's the point of the story great (laughs) God damn. <laughs> the one thing I do like about um, Bruce Calls from Mulholland is that there's a running thing of like mentioning somebody and then being like, she's worth $3 billion. He's worth $8.5 million. And then there's one character where they're like, he's he's worth uh, two pitas from Pita Hut and no drink. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah. Um, that's a clever line an- supported by nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not enough to carry an entire short story or uh, chapter. Like throwing a perfect beautiful apple out of a plane window into the middle of the fucking ocean <laughs> that was beautiful thank you that was more beautiful than than anything in bruce calls from Mulholland. eat your goddamn heart out <laughs> b-e-e yeah um okay so then our next vignette is called at the still point and this is a bunch of young men at a restaurant talking about how it's been a year since their friend jamie died um, Tom, you, I think you responded more positively to this story than I did. I felt like this one was also kind of throw away nothing <laughs> to here's, me. Here's my, here's my hot take. Cut that first chapter and cut the last chapter. Cause they're. Cut Bruce out altogether. Fuck yeah, him. All the whole fucking throw the entire man out. Get yourself <laughs> a goddamn new damn ass man. Um, <laughs> Because I think, like, of all the characters in this book, like, even though Jamie is, like, by far the most fucking reprehensible, for sure, or one of them, kind of splitting hairs when you really think about all the other people in this. Wait, who, what did Jamie do? Jamie, Jamie is the one, Jamie is the one who, the the dead friend who they are talking about, who's passed, um, he's the one who may or may not have been a vampire, who, unreliable narrator, uh, he's the oh, one who may the, not, or may not, He's the one who's the vampire. I did not put that together. Who is, who like preys on like extremely young women. Wow. Yes. I did not put together that Jamie was the vampire. Cause I I guess cause it's in first person. So they must just address him by his name like a time or two, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I totally missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cause I think that the, the setup between like, oh, our friend died and like there's some like weird suspicious circumstances about it, but like not enough to really like for any of us to probe about it. But we're but, you know, we we're the readers. So we know like, all right, that's that's weird that that doesn't square away. There's a reason that details there. 
and then you end the book with the chapter about Jamie because it does what that first chapter Bruce calls for Mulholland and then the last chapter we go to the fuck off zoo with Bruce that big dumb piece of shit um where the first one is supposed to be like Bruce is uh, not a very good person Bruce only cares about money whatever and then the last one is like oh actually Bruce is like actively like manipulative and abusive he is more than just like a vanity mannequin um he is he is like a truly evil fucking man jamie or uh, a bruce or Bru- okay but but when you have that in the same novel as also like jamie who who like i hope i'm not being glib here but like kills or like rapes kills and then and eats and drinks the blood of kids he, he drinks the blood of like 14 year old girls what the fuck brett um that is, a, I feel like that's a much stronger statement of the same thing. Um, cause all of Jamie's friends are equally vain and presumably so is he. Um, but then he gets the whole like, Oh no, he's actually like a really bad person. Like there is a, there is this veil of vanity and you peel it back and there's just like this desiccated corpse underneath. And that's what he thinks Los Angeles is. He's not hundred percent wrong. Um, but I think that that's a much better execution of what he's doing with that first and last Bruce chapter but with Jamie. And that's why I think I liked this, this chapter more. And also because I think it actually like has nuggets about what this world is like specifically the vampirism. Yeah. And since we're, since we're on the vampirism, that vampire chapter chapter is almost, almost at the end of the book. Yeah. And you've just read an entire fucking book where there are no vampires. And now suddenly you're, 50 pages from the end and now there are vampires yeah that's a really weird like tonal shift right but maybe they aren't because that's the isn't that that's the whole point is that all these characters are constantly lying about themselves so like who knows but i know you're right like (laughs) i'm sorry i feel like i i'm i'm stealing this podcast i just have a lot of thoughts steal away american psycho uh patrick bateman works better as an unreliable narrator, I think in ter- specifically in terms of who he is and his crimes. Cause we do know that like, there's that scene at the end where he just shoots a bunch of people and then calls his lawyer and the lawyer is like, what are you fucking talking about? Like nothing happened last night. Um, I think that's a lot better because it's one, it's more central to like what that story is about, which is a serial killer and, and it, and it builds to it much more intelligently and at a better pace as opposed to this, which like you said, goes from zero to fucking 60. And also it's, it's not serial killers, which this book is full of. Um, it's full on rapist vampires, like full the fuck on, um, which makes me just go like, well, they're not vampires. They're just vain idiots who think that they are. And there's like that one steak ash thing that's supposed to like confuse me, but just structurally speaking, because it's just, hey, vampires suddenly, it's like, well, this also isn't important because it's vampires suddenly and then suddenly they're gone and it doesn't fucking matter. And so it's like, then then what the fuck is the point of believing that they're vampires anyways? Who cares? Who gives a shit? <laughs> Who cares? Who fucking cares, Brett? Yeah, that's kind of the big takeaway from this whole book, right? Who gives a shit? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this, and I guess I don't know if I know it either. But what I've heard um, in Lunar Park, which is narrated by a fictionalized Brett Easton Ellis, mm. fictional Brett Easton Ellis says that that the informers was 
a bunch of like short stories that he wrote like as a teenager. And then after American Psycho came out and, and his publisher was just like, we want to, you're hot right now. We want to publish anything else. Mm. He's like, okay, I have this stuff. And it got, so it got published like later in his career, but it was like the first stuff he ever wrote. That. Which feels right. Yeah, that tracks. That, that super recalls like when Earl Sweatshirt and Tyler, the creator, and the, the whole like Wolfgang started out and all their lyrics were about like, I'm going to like rape somebody. Oh, and it was God. like, wow, this is, it's weird that everybody seems to be cool with this. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say if you go on to read more Brett Easton Ellis, he, uh, he's not get, he's not get less rapey from here. He yeah. gets, he gets more rapey. I figured. <laughs> um, but he does it better. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, not a high bar to clear, but, <laughs> um, but I do feel like the vampire feels kind of like a first a first pass at Patrick Bateman. Mm-hmm. Like that was maybe the seed of an idea that kind of eventually grew into like, okay, well maybe vampire is stupid. Maybe he should be a serial killer. Yeah. Um, Cause it does feel like the vampire is sort of, you know, a metaphor for vapidity or whatever in the same way that Patrick Bateman is. Yeah. Um, and on the one hand, and on the one hand, I hate that there are vampires in this book, but also on the other hand, I feel like that's like one of the only chapters where I'm not kind of like bored to death. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, this is trash. And also it's depressing, but like, fuck it, man, something is happening. And it's the only one that I think is like, I mean, there are a couple others. I it's you know, maybe it's just because it was the first one for me, but it's like the only one of these stories that was shocking enough for me to like even pretend to give a fuck, even if I hated the content. (laughs) I feel it. I feel like the same way about the chapter with the drug people. I don't know what they are. They're dealers or something who kidnapped the, kidnapped the little boy. Yeah, Like that's horrific. And, upsetting and feels kind of pointless but also on the other hand I feel like it's one of the best chapters in the book because like something is happening enough to hold my attention yeah like that's the thing is like it's so obvious that so much of this is like faux provocative bullshit where it's just like what's the most fucked up thing I could write and that's why the rest of the book is especially boring in comparison because it's like all right, so the most fucked up thing you can write is like this lady has is like having an affair with a college student, which yeah, not great, but I don't know. And then like and then he puts the pedal to the metal and it's like, "All right, well, you are actually executing the thing that you set out to do." So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Brett, finally you got me to to acknowledge you as an <laughs> author at the very least. Yeah. Um okay. So, so after at the still point which is a story about the vampire I just learned. I still can't believe that. I totally missed the Jamie with the vampire. Yeah. Um, so after that, uh, our next story is The Up Escalator, which is about a hot, hot Beverly Hills housewife who takes a lot of pills and is fucking a college student. Mm-hmm. He's one, one year older than her son, who's a high school senior. Um, and this one, I feel like you you ha- sounded like you have some disdain for, right? I actually like this I, one more than a lot of the ones in this book. It's not It's not a pointed disdain. I have just sort of a, a general malaise and disdain for this entire book. Well, that's fair, and I completely agree. I think that was just that was just my go-to example. Gotcha. I don't know. It was just... I, here, you. well, you had more interest in this than I did. Yeah, so what I, I guess what I liked about it is just... Um, I feel like that kind of like 
pill popping cougar is like a a character that I would expect an author like Brett to portray like really unsympathetically and kind of like paint with a broad brush. And I'm like reading the story. I'm just kind of surprised at sort of the emotional depth that I get from her, even though she's like, she's somebody that you would see on the surface and be like, Oh, you know, real housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever, but her like depression and angst and constant misery, like feel really real. And I think I'm also maybe additionally impressed um, because Brett in general is like not great at writing women. So then when he writes one acceptably, I'm like, Holy shit. He crushed it. it. Wow. And I think the big the big thing is that he's just kind of not really great at writing at writing characters that aren't the narrator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's recently recently uh, I've he's said a couple times on his podcast like um, character doesn't matter and plot doesn't matter. The only thing that matters. Oh, my little dog is so angry. Um, <laughs> so Brett says character doesn't matter and plot doesn't matter, and the only thing that matters is narrative voice, which is very apparent from the way he writes, yeah. right? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> and it results in like the only good character in everything he writes is the narrator. Mm-hmm. And most of his narrators are men, so yeah. by extension, most of his female characters suck. Um, but also I feel like the non the non-narrator female characters in general are like a little bit flatter than the non-narrator male characters. That's true. Yeah. But then when he writes a female narrator, uh, I, I feel like he usually pulls it off. Yeah, like when he writes a man, a man gets to be like a sex predator and a racist and a pedophile <laughs> yeah. and just like just like a violent psycho murderer. Yeah. Um, and when he writes a woman, she gets to be just like sad and pill-addled, which yeah. is only and two get raped things. a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I do. No, you're you're totally right. I think that my disdain for those quieter moments is because like they're quieter and also flatter although i you're totally on the money like he he does write like sadness and like the a drug-addled haze very accurately there is there is like there is very 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 little uh hope and understanding of the world just like literally everything like the way that people behave and the way that you're you behave but you just keep cycling through it when you're addicted and you just get you, like it's like you just sink into the in into the floor constantly or the earth it's terrible and i think that he does do that really well yeah and he's done it i think he he does it really well in a lot of his other works so i would be interested in what you thought of like less than zero if you ever if you ever want to read more of his works I'd love uh, to talk yeah sure i mean like this was a this was a boring read but it this was is, a quick one yeah. this is so i think this is definitely his most boring book so thank you for reading it no you're welcome um uh, i agree that i think the like quiet moments um in this book suck the most yeah <laughs> but i think that probably up the up escalator uh, is it's my, a, my favorite of those. Yeah, it's definitely a high mark of those. And by the way, I should say, I thank you very much for having me on. I know I'm trashing this book. No, that's I, what we're here for. Yeah, it's trash. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I genuinely do like talking about why things are good or bad. So, <laughs> just, so just so everybody's clear. I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so our ne- the next one, uh, we go to hawaii i guess we start Mm -hmm. in los angeles but then we go to hawaii Mm -hmm. um in the islands and this is 
Les Price and his son, Tim Price, who I don't know if you remember him from the American Psycho movie, but he is, he is, um, God damn it. What's his name? He's handsome. He was in Mulholland Drive. All right. Well, Justin Theroux, Justin Theroux, played by Justin Theroux and Patrick Bateman describes him as the only interesting person that he knows. Mm. And this is little, this is little Tim Price pre, pre American Psycho. Interesting. I think he's. He seems like a high school student in this story, where maybe he's maybe he's like early college. I'm not I, sure. I think he would have. Maybe we're t- going to do. But I think he would have been in. I guess college. he would have to be college. Yeah. Because I'm thinking Sean Bateman, who is Patrick's little brother, is also mentioned later in, in this, this story, and, and he, he he's already in college. He so Timothy UCLA, Price. UCLA. Yeah. Yeah. Or he. he Timothy Price attends UCLA, right? Uh, I think Sean Bateman. I think I read Sean that ba- Sean Bateman attended UCLA at the time that this book is set. Oh, Sean, because Sean Bateman is back east at Camden University, which is the setting of Rules of Attraction, which he's the main character mm. of. But maybe he also. T- who cares about the mythos? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this speaks to a, a crucial failure in Brett Easton Ellis' ability to concretely establish a mythos. Yes. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but yeah. I think I would rather live in H.P. Lovecraft's mythos because at least in that one, I would die quickly. And it's somehow, and I know like potato, potato, but I think H.P. Lovecraft's mythos might be less racist somehow. <laughs> wow. Incredibly, yeah. Um, H.P. Lovecraft, famously incredibly racist. Yeah, deeply, profoundly <laughs> racist. Yeah, <laughs> irredeemably so. Yeah. Um, Google what the name of his cat yeah, was yeah. if you haven't done it. Oof, yeah. it'll, it'll change the way you think about Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, so I would love to hear you unpack a little bit more in what way the Brett Easton Ellis Iverse is more racist than H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I mean, like, I think that I think that H. I think that Brett Easton Ellis has both the direct racism in a way in a way where he just like doesn't fucking dress it up at all. Like, yeah, like every single story in H.P. Lovecraft is about how he's terrified that uh, people might exist who are not like white Northeasterners, and like the I mean, like the the entire Call of Cthulhu thing is like, what if he's afraid of miscegenation um, and interracial relationships? And that is like deeply profoundly racist, but there is at least like a step of distance in the theming. Um, whereas you're like, saying at least it's like metaphorical racism. I, yeah. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that that makes it better or worse, but like Jesus Christ, Jamie won't stop trying to make that fucking Ethiopian joke land. <laughs> And yeah, he's paired against a character at one point who's like, that joke's really racist. But like the rest of the book is also incredibly like there's a bunch of like racist shit in this and like and everyone's fucking white. Like, like, I don't know, like I'm not trying to compare two bad things to be better or worse. They're both bad. But, I, (laughs) you know, I would I would at least rather like get smote by like a cool God that is supposed to represent racism than like get eaten alive or uh, while I'm being like fucked to death by (laughs) some fucking dude who's like 40 years older than me. (laughs) I do think like if you're going to get sucked into a universe, the Brady Stanalis universe is one of the last ones you ever want to choose. Yeah. It's like, it seems like Cthulhu death should be worse, but I feel like 
you're just gonna get like snapped up in one big bite. But yeah. Brady Snellis universe, you're gonna have like an incredibly creative torture scene death that goes on for 25 pages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I've been turned into a child. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's for some reason a bunch of Jew jokes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Oh man, it's just it's there's just so much to unpack. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot to unpack. Um, you and I are both white people. <laughs> yeah, very white people. <laughs> um, so we're maybe not the the best people to be authoritatively having this discussion. Yeah, perhaps <laughs> Dude, not. But it is worth. I mean, give, it's it's definitely worth mentioning just yes, how for fucking sure. virulent this book is about race. Like, yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. And the, the question I want to pose to you uh, is, do you think that Brett gets any credit for putting racism into the mouths of characters who are, he clearly does not think are good people? No. Okay. Not, <laughs> not even a little bit. Great. Not even a little bit. If this, this actually kind of gets into a broader problem that I had with this but like I don't think that Brett Easton under, Ellis understands why the fuck this happens to people I don't think he is the first fucking clue at least not at this point in his writing like and and it may depend on how much this changed from when he was a teenager to when he was an adult like you can see touches of it like the Tim Tim and uh Les story uh, like that is very much a story about like the way that like certain ethos of living, like I'm a man, so I'm going to fuck everything really fucks up younger people, like on an intergenerational level and how that there might be, especially because there's the implication that Tim is gay. Um, and, and, and the way that his father foists heterosexuality upon him is like really uncomfortable and gross. And it's like, yeah, yeah. But then his thesis is like, and it's because his dad's from L.A. And it's like, no, that's not why this is happening. Like, yeah. I don't think he understands how uh, class, race, the the intersection between the two and like and also the inter he clearly doesn't understand how the intersection between like that and gender works. Really, he's he's got like inklings of it, clearly, like he understands the surface of like, OK, women are treated worse and it is hard to be like closeted gay but it's because we live in los angeles and los angeles is the waste it's like i don't fucking know man <laughs> yeah i feel like this is something that has come up on a couple different episodes now of being like brett is observing something that is real and true but like he and he, he's so he's like almost making a good point, but it's like he doesn't fully understand what he's talking about. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but like given his just litany of dumb fuck comments that he makes about just the world, it's pretty clear that he didn't understand and then continues not to. It's not like he got it and then got worse, you know? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. And he one thing that he says that I came across recently. I don't know if he still says this, but for a while, this was one of his go-to sound bites was like, um, after American Psycho, the novel came out, you know, it was protested by like a bunch of women's groups before it had even been released. It was just protested based on like a little, a little excerpt that was leaked. And like th those protests snowballed so much that he got like death threats. So it was like a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he, so on many different occasions was like I was a feminist before that but then after that I just couldn't 
I just saw like the hysteria of feminism and it was just impossible for me to sympathize yeah. with them anymore. Cool. And I'm like, God, you're so... Yeah, damn, man. Way to not sound like a fucking reactionary, dumb, idiot piece of shit. Actually, that's a that's a really interesting thing to hear. You, Because um, currently that exact same thing is happening right now to Jesse Singal, who we've known for like, for, for people in like the queer community, specifically people like Savvy Two, the trans community, and their uh, uh, ongoing unfortunate relationship with him. Um, that he's a huge fucking transphobe and he's really fucking creepy about it. And he, and he, I mean, like he's still to this day, like harasses, um, this one trans journalist on Twitter and on blog posts and on all sorts of things to the point where she's like seeking legal action against him. And he's like, look at how fucking hysterical she's being. And very recently he, he has stopped dressing up his transphobia in like, I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions in, um, in, in a like sort of like faux, I'm, I'm like, I care about like social justice. He's kind of stopped doing that. And there is a YA author whose book got pulled, I believe entirely. Uh, a YA author who is a black man and his book got pulled because there were some, I, I believe not about black people, but insensitive racial elements about um, some civil war, I believe in like a, a Slavic country. Um, and Jesse Singal went on this whole fucking bizarre Twitter rant about how like, this is, this is like those crazy SJWs and how like, this is what happens when you let the mob rule of SJWs. And it's like, oh, this is identical. Like these two things, like you are a reactionary who does not actually care about these issues. You are just looking for a convenient out to be able to express your shitty beliefs and dress it up in this excuse of like, well, I was uh, into social justice and then it turned off. So many of them. Ian Miles Strong did it. Right. Is, it is it endless litany of those dumb fucks? <laughs> <laughs> I have no respect for that. <laughs> None. Sorry. That's fair. None is deserved. Uh. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break. And then when we get back, we'll jump back on into the informers, baby. Hell Yeah. Back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big Time Whoopsies, people are dumb, and history can prove it. Right, and we're back. So our next, our next story in the Informers is, to me, possibly the most pointless one. Uh, it's sitting still. It's a girl on a train oh. going home. Her dad is getting married to a girl who's about her age, and she doesn't know if her mom knows. Real snooze fest. Are you yeah. with me on this one? Yeah, there was a there, there was that Venezuelan boy on the train though. Yes, Venezuelan <laughs> boy on the train. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 uh, and then he, the, I literally don't know why this is in this book. Yeah, they should, this is about a, a a woman on a train. Yeah. Hey, there's a there's a better story about this. It's called the girl on the train. <laughs> I feel like in every single Brad Easton Ellis novel or short story collection comfortably I could cut out 25% and the 
the effect would only be positive. Absolutely. No matter how short they are, they're always over long. I feel this way about Lesson Zero, which is like 200 pages. It should yeah. be like 120 pages. This isn't much longer. This is 225. I think yeah. you could easily cut 75. <laughs> For sure, yeah. yeah. This should be four short stories. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Maybe four short stories made slightly longer, so yeah. that way they're fleshed out and actually connect to one another coherently. Yeah. Um, okay, so fuck Train Girl. And then next... <laughs> And then next is um, Water from the Sun, which is about a newscaster. The, the, okay, the story, the kind of setup of this one, I thought was like pretty cool and interesting and then sort of like feel like not much is done with it because it's mm-hmm. like this newscaster, who, uh, a woman who's dating like a much younger guy who kind of like lives in her apartment all day and like isn't allowed, like has to keep the phone off the hook so that if anybody calls, they get a busy signal. Yeah. And she just keeps coming home and like expects him to have recorded her her newscast, but he keeps forgetting. Like that kind of like base reality setup. I'm like, oh, there's something like really weird going on here. This mm-hmm. dynamic is insane and like you know like she she's kind of like a she's like a sugar mommy (laughs) yeah she's like a sugar mommy but she also seems like really creepy like she's she's like hiding she's both like super narcissistic and also like evading somebody like why is her phone off the hook all the time and then it like it's just like oh she doesn't want to talk to her ex-husband yeah well if memory serves she is the mother of the girl on the train Oh, is she? I believe she is and her husband and she's been postponing this call because I believe she actually does know that he is going to be married and she just doesn't want to hear it. Um, Tom, you're so smart. You've made so many. Like, I realized that the characters in this book were interconnected, but I'm realizing that I've missed like 50% of the connections. Here's a a stone cold fact. The only reason I know is because some brave soul put it in the Wikipedia, so I know. That makes me feel better. (laughs) It's nigh impossible to tell from the text. Okay. Yeah. Phew. It's It's like if you were in a... Like, okay, you, you know when you're playing, like, a video game mm-hmm. and, like, you, it, like, yeah, okay, here's a wall. I hit it, and so I can't go through the wall. It's like if you were thrown in a video game level that never loaded, so, like, the visuals didn't, but all the geometry, so you were, like, in an invisible maze. <laughs> That's what reading this fucking book is like. Oh, man, <laughs> you're full of amazing analogies and metaphors tonight. I oh, love it. Thank you. It's that, I got big Friday energy, baby. <laughs> Um, okay, so, yeah, I, I just, all I really have to say about Water from the Sun is, like, great setup, terrible payoff. Yeah, it's, and it's such a shame, because I think that there is, like, an interesting point to be made there of, like, again, like, we're, we're dealing with the intersection of, of, in this case, like, class and gender, where there is a power differential, but the woman has it. Because she is incredibly wealthy, she is she enjoys power of some kind as a news anchor, and and so she and she uses that to like kind of like protect herself in this perfect little bubble and have her in the power, even though she's like very clearly deeply sad and feels a lot of shame. Like there's there's a nougat there to be like okay, like let's see how class like granted her this power and also like took it away and it, 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 it like took away her sense of self-worth in this really like messy, uncomfortable, sad way. But of course that's not what it is. It's just, it's just like, ah, oh, cool. Like she's fucking a young guy, whatever. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> unreliable narrator. She's on drugs. Oh, she's at a she's eating breakfast at a diner. <laughs> it's so weird to me. This book, like, like knowing that it was written by a teenager, both makes sense and like makes it really baffling. Cause to me, it feels like it's written by 
a really old hack. Yeah, I feel like I would have at the very least tried to like edit it slightly in between yeah. teenhood and I guess he wasn't even that much older because he he hit, yeah. hit it big in college, right? Yeah. Um, Less Than Zero came out when he was like 20 or 21 mm. in 85. And then this was released in like 95. So he's like early 30s. Okay. By, yeah, the, by so the time he, it comes out, he's like 30. So what we're saying is that there's really no excuse for the state of this book. <laughs> yeah, I sort of feel like maybe he didn't edit it. Like maybe his publisher was like, we want to get this out like post haste. And he's like, all right, yeah, here's some stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Because um, I do think that when this, this came out in the, because he spent like, uh, the next book he wrote after American Psycho was Glamorama and he spent like, eight years writing it. Um, mm. So he was probably wrapped up in writing Glamorama at that point, and just his publisher just it. wanted to get something out, so they just, like, pushed, pushed this piece of shit out there. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, so our next, our next story is called Discovering Japan, which in my memory, because I, I first read this, like, I don't know, six years ago when I was first getting into Bredis and Alice. Uh, in my memory, it was one of my favorite stories. And then revisiting it, I was like, this is a big ball of nothing. Yeah. It's about a uh, an abusive rock star who is on a lot of heroin. I think it's heroin. A lot of drugs. But I don't know if it even matters. Yeah, who cares? <laughs> he's, he's on tour. He's in Japan. And he is sexually abusing a bunch of young people, as are so many characters in this yeah. book. And his, like, roadies and everybody that he's connected with is also sexually abusing a bunch of young people, which is kind of a running theme in the works of Bretty Stanellis is the objectification of barely legal or not at all legal um, <laughs> people. Yeah, oh, man. That was the thing I was expecting the least, I think. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, especially the graphic, graphic detail of some of them. yeah. Definitely, some of them are, are more horrifying than others. Um, this the this one doesn't go into too much detail. This is has more like hints, at horrible things that have happened. Um, like the one, the one and only detail that really stuck in my mind uh, from between like the five the five years from the last time I read it to this time reading it was that he wakes up in the morning with a, a little Japanese groupie in his bed and she has like flecks of paper on her face from the Kleenex he made her eat. He made her eat Kleenex. What? Man. And this has stuck with me for years as both bizarre and like weirdly erotic. <laughs> oh my God. I'm kind of into it. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> All right. Okay. Question. Yeah. Kleenex used or unused? Oh, unused, unused. Okay, yeah, I think that's it's clear. true. I think it's clear from context that he, he, she was eating what them like straight out of the box. Weird, weird thing to write. This is one of I think Brett's like most the one of his skill sets that most endears him to me is his ability to think of just like truly bizarre sexual humiliations that no one else would ever come up with. Yeah, I mean, he, this is kind of like <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis is kind of like. 
4chan before 4chan, <laughs> you know? I'm not a big, I'm not, I'm not big on the forums. What, what aspect of 4chan are you referring Actually, to? Technically, technically speaking, given the content of these books, he's probably closer to 8chan now that I think about ooh, it. Ooh, gross. But where it's like, ooh, like sexualization of, of underage people. Um, and, uh, um, no rules, no rules. You can mm. say and do whatever the fuck you want to. Right. He's identical. He actually, now that I think about it, this book is identical to reading like a forum thread on 8chan. <laughs> Yikes. Do you, okay, so Maybe THQ will fucking sponsor Freddy's Tanellis. <laughs> What's THQ? THQ is the video game publisher that recently held like two days ago an AMA on fucking 8chan. Oh, right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question for you, as somebody just just being introduced to the role of Brady Stanellis. Do you feel like this book is 8chan or do you think that it is about 8chan and, and their ilk? I think it is 8chan because okay. I don't think it's self-aware enough to be... I, I think this is probably kind of like those uh, THQ PR guys who are clearly so inundated in that culture that they didn't realize that people would have a problem with them going on a website created to disseminate child porn. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You, okay. Fair yeah, enough. I feel like I feel like Brett Easton Ellis is like so deep in the fucking paint with this shit that like he just doesn't. I think he he obviously understands that it's provocative to like polite society or whatever, <laughs> um, but he's he's like just engaging with it in the same raw level that they do on a chan, and so there's like very little to distinguish the two of them. All right. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I, I think feel like he'd be he, right at home. <laughs> I feel like he gets a lot of credit as like a satirist and like a lot of the provocative things that he writes about. Are, he kind of like gets a pass from a lot from a lot of polite society yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, under like the guise of like it's well, it's satire. He's making a comment. But I feel like for the most part, that is misguided. And yeah. like he do, he's not really a satirist. I mean, the presence of H-Chan, like there are literally like. I know about this because it was like very big during Gamergate, but like there are literal fucking forum threads on that that are dedicated to discussing raping children. Like that's what that website is. And like this is, you know, in a world where that exists, this cannot be satire because mm. it, because it just is an accurate reflection of things, you know? Yeah. Do you think that writing it in the eighties changes that? That's fair. That, that he, there may be, wasn't as much of a <laughs> pre pre internet who maybe what weren't as aware. Yeah. I mean, people knew pedophiles existed, but you weren't really aware that they weren't like swapping I, <laughs> swap tips on the internet. I guess they weren't swapping tips on the internet, but also like, I mean, but Jeffrey Epstein exists and he was, you know, doing what he did. And I like the reason that he walks free is because he's got that network of people. So Which one is Jeffrey Epstein? I'm Jeffrey sorry, there's Epstein so many pedophiles. The billionaire pedophile who uh, Epstein's plane. Yes, Bill Clinton was on Epstein's Express. plane. That's why. I know yeah, who he that is. Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have both flown on. Cool. <laughs> love, love, love American politics. Yes. Love them to death. So great. Yeah. It's so great. But I, you know what? I will say I do think that that is a fair counterpoint to my argument. I definitely think in a modern context, this and HN are like pretty indistinguishable from one another. Uh, yeah, with certainly. the exception of the fact that like this book doesn't have pictures, thank Christ. <laughs> yeah. um, certainly, if you went into reading The Informers feeling like 
I'm okay with all of this stuff, you wouldn't leave reading the informers feeling like you'd been scolded. Yeah. <laughs> like you'd you'd leave being like, yeah, that was I enjoyed reading about those things happening. I guess I guess it's mainly just that uh, it's not very surprising. Like I think that you and I I mean, we did kind of discuss this already that we identified like things in this book as shocking, but I don't think that we personally were shocked or even like like I don't even know if offended would be the right word. I'm just like, you know, it's like the it's like yeah, like this is this is what these people are like, and this is just yeah. not surprising to me anymore. Yeah, I do remember the f- the first time I read it, I was sh- I was shocked by the pedophilia, the specifically the the little boy, the most the most I, extreme case of pedophilia because it's the youngest. Yeah. I was definitely, in this book. I was definitely surprised because I yeah. didn't I didn't realize that it was going to be so central. But right. yeah. Yeah. I was I wasn't yeah, I wasn't like shocked that a book could talk about that or like shocked that that happens. But it is like it kind of comes at you out of nowhere and for no real reason <laughs> yeah it's like it's like you flip the page and boom there it is <laughs> yeah 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 so it's I, yeah i guess it's it's shocking it's clearly shocking because it wants to be like it doesn't want to it doesn't want to prepare you for this it just wants to do it, it. just wants yeah. you to be like what the fuck just happened yeah this is an internet shock image like that's what this yeah. is yeah, yeah that's this true is Goatsy, but yeah vile. yeah totally at least goatsy is impressive <laughs> See, you can feel free to edit, oh. edit this out, but I've actually yeah. found other videos by that guy, and he just he he just is like that's his skill, and he's just really good at like having really? a big asshole and putting big stuff inside wow. of it, and he produces porn about that centers around that. Is it okay? I've had so many More. questions about Goatsy for so many years, but I didn't know that there were answers available. Is it like that all the time, or? Does he have a medical condition? <laughs> I always thought he had like a bat. <laughs> My dog did not like that. I mean, I, I always thought that was a picture of a guy with like a medical condition that was like, no, like it's, it just he just is able to do that. There was and a then, piece about apparently there's a community of people who who train themselves to be able to do that because it's not something you can just do one day. Right. Uh, it definitely seems like from what I've seen that it has like a, a lasting effect on specifically the elasticity. I could see Jesus that. Jesus Christ, this episode should have a content warning. So <laughs> this <is the> most <laughs> nothing damn. could be more fitting yeah. for Brady's Danellis. Oh man, I was so curious when I was like 13, 14. Oh boy. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. Honestly, like it's, it's legitimately like very impressive. And I think that this guy is doing the world a service. By, by <laughs> That's doing beautiful. It. Yeah. That's a beautiful Goatsy thing. Yeah. Like I think that there's a lot of like, oh, like Goatsy is like shocking. But now in the, now in a, in a world where like we're just constantly inundated with like deeply like extreme sexual imagery and like and like real extreme sexual imagery on like the internet and stuff mm-hmm. Goatsy's just like yeah this dude just loves having a huge asshole he just loves how big it is <laughs> and god bless him for it yeah yeah <laughs> he's not hurting anybody Goatsy's so valid <laughs> i'm really happy that we had that conversation yeah <laughs> i'm glad my horrible depths of knowledge over the internet have finally fucking paid off <laughs> Gorgeous. Oh. 
Okay. So, um, discovering Japan, pretty boring, right? For like an abusive drug addled rock star, there's like not much going on there. Yeah, I don't even know what the point is. Like, ooh, LA's LA music industry, the tendrils reach out. And it's like, yeah, but it's not LA. Like, that's not the right. fucking problem, Brett. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so our next one. Uh, is Letters from L.A., mm-hmm. which I think is maybe my favorite chapter in this book. Yeah. It's the girl, the uh, girl named Anne writing a series of letters to a boy named Sean, who it seems fair to assume is Sean Bateman, Sean Bateman who is yeah. Patrick Bateman's little brother and is also the protagonist of The Rules of Attraction. Um, and so she she writes him a series of letters, and it becomes just increasingly clear that, like, he thinks she's weird. He doesn't give a shit about her. And he's not answering her letters. And she keeps saying, like, I'm going to stop. This is going to be my last letter. And then she keeps writing. Like, every two days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she's, like, very, she's very determined to keep up, like, a good face about it and mm-hmm. to act like she's consistently perky, even though she's clearly, like, very hurt by him not answering and is also seems, like, potentially a little unwell yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you read her that way as like Progress- a little unhinged well not less i don't know i don't think i don't think that there's like quite enough in the text to to like definitively say whether or not this this like i don't know pen pal pursuit is like either misguided or nefarious or what it i i don't know like that now that you bring it up, like, possibly, but in that case, I don't totally know what thematic purpose it serves. Like, it definitely, like, as a, as a, like, a little, like, story vehicle, like, yeah, like, she has to keep writing letters to this guy, so there has to be, like, a reason, so maybe she's, I don't know, pining for him, but it also didn't seem romantic, and it didn't. Aside from the frequent letter writing, didn't seem obsessive, and much of the content of her letters isn't really about him or trying to get him to do anything other than just write back. So, I don't know. Maybe. That's interesting that you didn't read it as romantic, because I, I really did. And, and now I'm like, was I just bringing that? <laughs> to me, it felt it felt like, explicit that she was pining for him and wanted him to return those feelings but now I can't actually like point to a moment in the text where that was made explicit so I might have just yeah but also like why the fuck did she keep writing him now now that you've pointed this out like I know like plot hole criticism especially like in the modern age is is sometimes a fruitless endeavor, but yeah, it like kind of doesn't make sense that she keeps writing him. Yeah. Is she, and she's not a character in the rules of attraction, right? Or less than zero. Sorry. Whichever one is about Sean. It can be hard. It's hard to keep them, to keep the characters straight because they're just a bunch of names and they're usually not really differentiated that much, but I don't think she's a character in anything else. I Mm -hmm. can't remember ever, ever reading about her. There is a character in, um, in Rules of Attraction, who kind of reminds me of her, who is like a very obsessive, 
character who's in love with Sean and keeps like slipping him notes in his locker and eventually kills herself actually uh, okay. because he doesn't love her. Another great piece of representation. <laughs> really beautiful. Brett. Really gorgeous. <laughs> um, so I, I might have been bringing that to the table that like the last time I read about a girl compulsively writing letters to Sean, mm. she killed herself because she loved him so much. So I'm I, I may have just assumed like oh this is another of those maybe maybe this was like the seed of that then. yeah maybe yeah okay what well, hey I think we <laughs> sussed something out <laughs> right nice um yeah what did you what did you think of the ultimate like arc of this I like it's very strange <laughs> I feel like if I was looking at it with like a really my really my like literary criticism glasses on I might I might take issue with it but I was like it, it's pretty late in the book and I was like so grateful to be like entertained and yeah. like somewhat captivated that I was wow. like great yep 10 out of 10 I will go anywhere with this character because yeah. I'm like having fun um it is she does have kind of an odd an odd and very like Bret Easton Ellis E um, story where she just suddenly, suddenly she's just spending all this time with this like older guy who's like a movie, a movie producer or a music producer. I can't remember uh, some kind of big yeah. Hollywood big wig, but like a young one, like mid twenties and they start doing a lot of drugs together and she's hanging out with this guy all the time. And then he, um, there's a little bit of like kind of a, a gap in, her understanding of their relationship and kind of like the way we, the reader start to understand their, their relationship because she'll say stuff about like, Oh, he seemed like really, he seemed really depressed and just like really down. But I showed him some leotards I bought. So then he was fine after that. And it's like, that guy wasn't fine. Cause you showed him your leotards. Yeah. Like you think you fixed his depression just by being like, I went shopping today. Um, but she seems like, she doesn't really understand him. Like there's something dark going on with him that she doesn't really understand, but she's kind of still reporting it to Sean. Yeah. And then eventually he dies and she said, and it's implied that he's murdered. Right. But she, but she thinks that he committed suicide. Yeah. yeah. She's told that he committed suicide and then she's like, but you know, I looked in their room after he died and like his blood was all over the ceiling and I don't know how that could happen if he committed suicide. But it's in this like very, very like dopey tone. Like yeah. her, the tone of her letters never really changes. It's kind of this like goofy, dopey, like fun girl, even when it's like her boyfriend was murdered and or killed himself. Yeah. Oh, man. I actually, the more I think about this one, the more I think the only reason I liked it was because it was that, Finally, oh God, a character with an arc and like an actual story with a coherent, relevant, thematic point. Thank Christ, I don't have to read about a guy fucking and killing some kids and then it just stops. Yeah. Thank Christ. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like the, the sort of, she goes out to the, it seems like she's from the West Coast she was going to college in the East Coast, but now she's she's out in L.A. again for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, and she's like, I'm just taking some time off. But then as time goes on, she's like, I don't know if I can really stand to go back. And then it seems like she just kind of gets swallowed up by L.A. and kind of disappears into like the parties and the drugs and whatever, which I feel like is a big a big theme in Brett's work is kind of like disappear here is a refrain in less than zero. It's sort of about mm. like, you know how the city will kind of just like swallow you up and you just kind of like 
drug drug your life away. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and so this, this is like a pretty clear distillation of like something that Brett clearly thinks about a lot or thought about when he was younger, at least. I wonder if it also works because it is I, like it's I don't think it's doing anything like self-aware or or particularly unique, but it is like that very quintessential trope of like bright eyed young woman goes to L.A. and then is, like, unmade by it. Yeah. Um, And I don't know. Like, the more that I'm thinking about it, especially the way that you bring up, like, the suicide at the end, I feel like the... Like, because we are familiar with that story, we fill in the gaps of this one where, like, when it's actually not written particularly well, like, I feel like the implication... And what is happening and what we've seen with other characters is that she's getting more and more depressed. And perhaps I, I, I almost wonder if like the suicide thing is less about Randy and more about her mm. um, because like because Randy's murdered. So if he was thinking about suicide, sorry, Randy, you didn't get your chance. <laughs> um, and and the, the drugs and depression and the way that she sort of just like it almost feels like somebody like walking into the ocean and letting themselves slip beneath the waves mm. kind of where she's just, she keeps saying that she's going to leave and she's going to do all these things. And then she's just like, actually, I don't know. And then presumably just gives up with this letter writing, which I wonder if that is actually almost more of a thematic thing than a plot thing now, because it's like, Oh, she's given up on her one anchor in the in the world she's she's writing him because he's an anchor and not because of a romance or or whatever reason i don't know that it, again once again there's a nugget of something here there is there is something <laughs> and it is bolstered by the fact that there is like a literary and just storytelling precedent for it but yeah ultimately not quite square in that circle yeah did you notice the little moment there's there's only really like one moment where we get kind of a hint of what her relationship to Sean was like when they were in college at college together, because she says like, Oh, and whoever our mutual friend told me about that time that you said that she mentioned me and you said, Oh, that's like, that's a really sad girl. And uh, don't worry. I get, it's funny. I'm not mad at you. <laughs> like, that's a, that's just like, I feel like says a lot about this character Yeah, that yeah. she's, she's like, gonna play that off as like a fun joke but she's not gonna play it off so much that she's not gonna bring it up and not gonna like write him a letter about it mm -hmm. like yeah i don't know There's it's yeah it is the quintessential brett easton ellis woman which is passive as hell and and uh, possibly like just dumb as shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like i feel like the majority of brett easton ellis women have the kind of like <clears throat> like shitty shit don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. I the like vibe I get from a lot of Bretty Stanellis's female characters is that they have that kind of like intelligence and sensibility sensibility of like a boring like sitcom housewife. Mm -hmm. Like you you know, like the the housewife that like no one actually likes that character, but it's like, oh she's She's so capable. <laughs> like, like she's always she always has to deal with everybody's shit and she, like that kind of like nod to being like 
the idea that they're more emotionally mature than the men or something. But it just kind of leaves them feeling like really boring (laughs) because they don't get to be immature like the men and they just come out flatter. He always, he always, it feels like he always hints at like their intelligence, but just doesn't really bother exploring it. Like it definitely feels like he acknowledges like, Yes, did you know that women are people too who who like have understanding and some level of authorship in their own lives but like outside of maybe a few like it feels like th- that only really gets expressed that broader understanding in their like deepest lowest moments like with mm. the newscaster Cheryl and her when she's at the um the diner and those kids make fun of her and she's just like these fucking assholes are making fun of me in my life and my life is really fucking hard but like i i am somebody and how fucking dare they like that moment but also like she needed to be completely broken down in order for us to get there and and therein lies another problem You're right um all right so our next next story after that is uh another gray area which is maybe Maybe even more than the girl on the train story. I feel like, what the fuck is this? Why is this? Why do I care? There's a bunch of bullshit, and somebody's dad dies in a plane crash, and then there's a bunch more bullshit. Uh, I'm I'm happy to just skip over this, but I just wanted to acknowledge that it exists. Let's please <laughs> let's let us let us be as two ships passing. Yeah, this was the, when I when I edit this into a nice something nice and <laughs> nice and tight. Uh, this is going to be one of the first things on the chopping block. Oh, hell no yeah. point to this one. <laughs> um, and then we got Secrets of Summer, which is the vampire that we already talked about. Um, one thing one thing about the vampire that I wanted to touch on is. In my memory from my first reading of this book, I really remembered it being like uh, a like unreliable narrator thing. Like, oh, are they really vampires or is this guy like mentally ill and just thinks he's a vampire? But I really felt on this reading like, no, nah, these are legit vampires. Like, I felt like there's not a there's not a clear way to read this where he's not just an actual vampire. Yeah, because there's this full community of other people who are all like we are also vampires. So, so, um, it's not group delusion. Yeah. It would have to be a group. It would have to be a group delusion. And then there's also the part where they're like, our friend died and we found a stake and a pile of ash by his pool, which is one ridiculous and super goofy. Um, but also it's like, I mean, what else are we to take from that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Unless, unless like, I guess if I'm going to jump through hoops to make them not vampires, I could say like, Roderick? Was that the vampire that died's name? It's something like that. I think it's Roderick. Yeah. Well, this is Brett Easton Ellis, so in his own words, names are not important. Very true. Um, well, let's call him Roderick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe Roderick was like, I don't want to be involved with these vampire people anymore. I got to get out of here. So I'm going to stage my own death. I'm going to get a pile of ash from the fireplace and a wooden stake and leave them by my pool and then I'm going to skip town. That's me do if I'm gonna do a lot of work to to make them not real vampires, I guess I can. But it seems to me like we're supposed to buy them as like legit vampires. Yeah. Yeah. Like and as so many other people like there's all that talk about like, ah oh, shit, like people get their fucking blood sucked out in Mexico or like when Jamie does Well, that's the other thing. Here's okay. Okay though. Can mm-hmm. I can I throw a wrinkle in? 
Do it. That I think is is maybe just sort of like objectively bad plotting on Brett's part. <laughs> okay. Vampires don't and cannot drink other vampires' blood. It will mm. kill them. Mm. Dirk drinks Jamie's blood. Because mm. that's the big thing of the car crash is that like, that they're discussing in that first short story is um, Dirk says he watched him bleed out. But... The news report, all the official reports, are that he died on impact, or that's what he told the police initially. And the narrator in that story kind of just brushes it off as like, well, it was traumatic. He was there when he died. Um, but he did. But Jamie, I, I maybe I'm misremembering, but I'm pretty sure Jamie doesn't have any blood in him mm. by the time he's dead, which means that they can't be... I mean, I mean, like, vampire also is, like, a very loose thing now. Vampires can be and do pretty much anything, it <laughs> yeah. seems. Um, which isn't necessarily a problem. But uh, I don't know. Like, that is a wrinkle to it okay. that, that makes it feel... I mean, we're obvious. We're looking for, for canon in, in something that is deliberately meant to confound. So, like, perhaps this is a fruitless endeavor. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, like... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I reading reading um, the secrets of summer, which is the vampire story. Um, I was really like, oh, I bet if I was reading this in a time before vampires were as played out as anything could possibly be, I bet this would be like pretty cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it's still like you know horrifying, but I like I feel like I feel like it would legitimately be like a good horror story without that kind of like layer of like embarrassing twilightness yeah. to it i'm i'm also just gonna call death of the author which if i had to take a wild guess is probably something that incenses brett <laughs> um and say that he did a bad enough fucking job of building this world out specifically the vampire part that i've just decided for me that they're not fucking vampires <laughs> i love it because yeah. like because the characters from this are in everything else he ever writes so if there are vampires in this there have to be vampires in american psycho and less than zero and rules of attraction that's the thing like (laughs) come on man if you're if you're if you're gonna have a mythos (laughs) like have a fucking mythos bro and then it's never it's never it never happens again yeah although i do feel like i i just reread glamorama i think there was one quick mention to vampire people just like a quick throwaway that could be nothing um but there is there is a very quick reference to it, but yeah. Also, that's such a big aspect of your world building and mythos for it to be an unreliable narrator thing. Like right. either either you ex- either Patrick Bateman lives next door to a goddamn vampire <laughs> or he doesn't. Right. Um, okay, and then the next one is the fifth wheel, which we've already touched on. It's the one where. Uh, a little, a 12 year old boy is kidnapped for no reason. Yeah. For a nominally at first for uh, ransom, but then they never get around to asking for ransom money for him. And the one guy starts raping him. Yeah. And then the other guy kills him. And then the other guy, but not before raping the first guy's girlfriend who then tells a story about, well, he killed the last guy who I had sex with. So, uh, don't do it. And then, of course, it happens anyways. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and then the end of the short story is the guy's like, 
that didn't happen and I don't remember it and seems genuinely confused instead of like lying. And frankly, like if you are openly fucking and killing a, a 12 year old boy, feel like you're probably not that cagey about the other murders that you've committed. <laughs> so I don't understand what the point of that was. Fair enough. Yeah. I do think, um, a lot, a lot of this story is a, a lot of this book is the seeds of Brett's later works. And I do feel like, um, the character, the the narrator of this chapter, I can't remember his Tommy. name. Tommy. I think that Tommy is kind of a predecessor to Clay, who is the narrator of Less Than Zero, mm. who is kind of like complicit in a lot of horrible things, including the rape of a 12-year-old, which also happens in Less Than Zero. Um, <laughs> Fucking God. And he's not an active participant in like any of the horrible things that happen, but he's just like consistently unable to to do anything about anything going on around him. And I feel like this character who clearly doesn't want, like this, there is something interesting in this character that is also explored in lesson zero about like, he doesn't want to be kidnapping a child. He never wanted to kidnap the child. He doesn't want the child to be hurt. Um, but he's also like, he's, he's like, I just, gotta not think about this as much as possible like he he thinks about maybe checking to see if the kid's getting fed and then he's like no i don't want to go into the bathroom like he yeah. starts pissing in the sink so that he doesn't have to go in the bathroom where the kid's tied up and then um and then when um the boss i don't know if he's the boss but the the pedophile i don't know his name peter peter yeah um when peter's like you got you got to kill the kid you got to kill the kid sorry he's just kind of like i guess i gotta kill the kid because peter said i gotta kill the kid and then he does just the worst possible job of yeah, killing the kid. It so he like bad. stabs him. He stabs him in the stomach a bunch of times. I gotta say, I, I've I've never killed anybody, and I never would. I have to imagine it's so easy to kill up a kill a twelve year old boy tied up in a bathtub. Yeah. It feels super easy to do. It feels like you at least know to go straight for the throat, right? Yeah, like the jugular vein. Yeah, like why would you ever start at the stomach? <laughs> it feels like almost almost comedic in how badly he botches it. Like it remind if it wasn't a little boy that it was happening to, it feels like it would almost be like something from a Quentin Tarantino movie. Honestly. Like just like the incompetent hitman scene, you know? If this if this entire godforsaken book hadn't been just chock full to the brim of of child rape, I think that <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think that um that that moment, if he had just killed him and there had been no sexual assault, I think that if he had just killed him badly I and that had been, like, the high point of murder, I think that it would have... I think it would have been still a little uncomfortable because it's a kid, but I think it would have landed better as, like, a yeah. moment of, of, like, brutal comedic incompetence where he's like, fuck, I don't know how to kill this little boy. Like, yeah. that would have been, like, kind of funny because it is, like... Like, I feel like that would have been the platonic, well, platonic, maybe not the, it's objectively not the right word, uh, ideal of, of what Brett Easton Ellis likes to do, which is, like, shock, but also to, like, have it be sort of irreverent and in, in this weird, like, sickly comedic way. If he had just, like, if the rest of this book had just been, like, fucked up shitty people all fucking each other's wives and, and college-age students or whatever, um... And then had pivoted to like this total fucking degenerate. Because that's the thing is everybody else is so wealthy. But Tom, like Peter is clearly not a member of that class. Which like 
also, again, like, what what are you saying with that? Are you <laughs> saying anything? I don't think that you are. I think you just wanted to rape and kill a 12-year-old boy, Brett. God damn. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry, to wait one final point about the 8chan thing. That's the other thing, is if you spend any a modicum amount of time around, like, even tangential to those people... Um, you understand that they only have one joke. They only have one joke ever. And in this case, Brad Aysen's one joke, if you can call it that, is like, what if I raped and killed a 12-year-old? Like, <laughs> like, that's what it is. And I mean, like, I guess the least blue equivalent of that would be uh, 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 like when conservatives make trigger jokes where it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's your one joke for every situation is like somebody says something and you're like triggered. It's like, uh, okay, well, this isn't funny. And, it, and you've said it a million times. Yeah. <sighs> um, okay. So we're almost at the end of this goddamn book now. And there's just two not, not interesting stories. Again, left. I want to apologize to everybody. If I'm being too clip about the child rape and murder, <laughs> I don't know how to talk about this for that. I don't think you're being too glib. Okay. I think that you're a sweet, wonderful boy. <laughs> and I made you read this horrible book <laughs> by a horrible man. <laughs> <laughs> and harangued me with your vicious attack dog. <laughs> um, I think you do. I think you're... I think you're on the right side of history here. <laughs> I think you're doing great. <laughs> um, okay, so there's just two stories left, and I could do without either of them. There's On the Beach, which is about a girl who has cancer. And to me, it's kind of not really a story about much other than just, like, having cancer being sad. Yeah. <laughs> Did you take anything else away from it? It's told from the perspective of her, of her boyfriend, and, like, and he doesn't care. And, like, right. and like that would have had any impact if we did not just come hot off the heels of something far, far worse. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. These, like, who can care about anything after that? This is like, this is kind of like when an al- album is like sequenced terribly <laughs> where it's just like, like, you know how when you listen to like Emotion Side B like Carly Rae Jepsen, it's uh-huh. like, fuck, this is sequenced so goddamn well. <laughs> or like anything, or like anything by really well curated pop artists like Beyonce or, or like, um, Oh, didn't Solange just drop? Yeah. She dropped a new album today and a whole film for it. And I'm really excited to listen to it. And you know what? I bet it's going to be sequenced to fucking perfection. There's not going to be a improper deployment of tone or feeling at all. Whereas this is like all the fuck over the place. Yeah. This is like, this is like Jackson Pollock, but it's all blood and cum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. extremely true. This is the the um, Sasha Baron Cohen character on who who is America who paints with his own bodily fluids. Oh God. Um, and then our final our final chapter. You hated it. I felt completely neutral towards it. <laughs> was uh, at the zoo with Bruce, oh, who yeah. is also the character that we open up on. And there's it's mostly just kind of. A malaise-filled trip to the zoo, right? Yeah. And this girl loves Bruce, and she wants Bruce to love her back. He seems like a shitty dude, and like he doesn't care much about her either way. And he keeps talking her out of breaking up with him. Right. Yeah. And then there is one quick moment that I'm looking for right now. Okay. So they're at the zoo. The polar bears look sad. That's kind of... She's like, don't break up with me. She's like, okay... 
And then he takes my hand and pulls it away from him and holds it between us on the bench. And he quickly tells me, listen, my, my name is Yachnor and I am from the planet Arachnoid, and it is located in a galaxy that Earth has not yet discovered and probably never will. I have been on your planet according to your time for the past 400,000 years and I was sent here to collect behavioral data which will enable us to eventually take over and destroy all other existing galaxies, including yours. He goes on a little bit more about, <laughs> his, about his alien <laughs> mission and then he says... I know you will find this hard to believe, but for once I am telling you the truth. We will never speak of this again. And indeed they don't. Yeah. She doesn't have any internal monologue about that. We don't get anything of her opinion on it. And she, it just moves on. And at the end she's like, I think maybe Bruce loves me. Do you know what's incredible? <laughs> what? I did not remember reading that sequence at fucking all until you just brought it up again because I was so far past giving a shit at this point. <laughs> Man, that is so weird. <laughs> I feel like sometimes Brett is literally the equivalent of when you're writing an essay and you're like, Mr. Johnson, are you even reading this? Yeah. Like he's, he's just like, <laughs> also, I'm an alien. Are you, are you still reading? That's such a shame, too, because I think that that's awesome. I think it's couched in a dumb, worthless thing, but, like, that is fucking hilarious and a great way to, like, go out on your novel. And I wish, I wish that it had been anyone else but Bruce. I would, like, because don't they talk about, like, ooh, what if I, like, fed you to the lions or something like that? Something, yeah. Yeah, God. Oh, man. One, Brett, don't tease me. <laughs> fucking give me the meat. And two, like, man, that would have been so much better if it was like, also, I'm a vampire alien and I was sent here to collect data and then he dies for no reason <laughs> in a car accident. Because yeah. I think that that would have been, frankly, a lot better and funnier than like, oh, I guess I guess the guy who was obsessed with monetary values of everybody earlier, just like a real-life Los Angelino, is actually an alien who doesn't care and is here to wipe us all out. <laughs> yeah. That makes way... That, that, that it's like... It's way stupider that way. <laughs> it's it's, it's almost like he wrote the second one and also named that person Bruce, having forgotten the first Bruce that he wrote about, which is entirely possible yeah. because if I hadn't looked it up on fucking wikipedia i i did i did forget to <laughs> there's also a bruce in glamorama who's a supermodel terrorist and i'm like i don't know if this is the same bruce are they all three the same bruce are two of them the same bruce he could be a shapeshifter he's an alien who the fuck knows who knows do you think what do you think is going on with him in universe or do you think it matters i don't think it matters do you think he's an alien I it doesn't hope, matter right i hope he's an Brett's alien Brett's just like who gives a shit and i hope he wipes out that whole godforsaken world <laughs> jesus <laughs> i feel like i'm drunk right now i feel <laughs> fucked up on how fucked up ready is all right i well, feel like i just drank a bunch of franzia <laughs> straight out of the bag what a nightmare oh all right well that's the informers wow that's we did it we I did hope, it listener and I hope you feel informed. <laughs> That's why it's called that. I get it now. Yeah, wow. Brett Easton Ellis is a misunderstood genius. So true. Yeah. So true. Um, before we close the book on the informers, so to speak, um, I would like to rate it on a scale of one to five. I am going... I'm going I'm, to... I always make my scale something from the book. I'm going to rate it on a scale of one to five Deadpool rats. Not Deadpool rats. 
Oh, I- <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had me there. Rats that are like, is dubstep still a thing? <laughs> it, it's five stars out of five. All the, all the stars Thomas. are dead, though. All the stars are dead. Their light is false. Their brilliance, false. They are not true. They are liars. And and honestly, the their continued existence past their death is an insult to man and God, both. And... They will wink out of existence and be forgotten shortly. You're my favorite person, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. you know who I think might be one of my least favorite people? Freddie Stanoni. <laughs> you are one of my favorite people at Chicago. You so You're wonderful. I am having, I hated, I truly hated this book. <laughs> I had a fucking blast talking about Aww, it. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, um, <laughs> is that going to be your canonical rating that's my five dead stars five dead stars out of five i love it mere months out of away from winking out of existence beautiful yeah so have fun have fun parsing that everybody (sighs) uh i'm gonna give it would you like to elaborate on why you give it five dead stars no i don't think okay it speaks for itself it speaks for itself i on a scale of five dead rats in the pool i'm gonna give it one and a half dead rats in the pool. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Got cleaved half. right down the middle. Yeah, how'd that, how'd that rat? I mean, was it a really particularly strong trap? <laughs> it was. <laughs> the pool boy was fucking with it. I don't know what he did, but um, I feel like there are a couple of sh- brief shining moments of yeah. interesting thoughts compelling characters uh cap captivating situations but overall i feel like this is a book that no one ever needs to read and i would never recommend to anyone (laughs) it's like if you end up (laughs) harvey's very offended he loves this book He's been surprisingly well behaved. He's not say. been as monstrous as he could be. Um, if you end up reading it, you will find just enough sustenance along the way to keep your brain from completely dying. But don't bother. Can I can I elaborate on your rating <laughs> yeah. for two seconds? Yeah. Because you just said canonically that it's the pool boy's fault and yeah. it takes place in the Brady's Fellows universe uh-huh. of the Informers, which means that canonically that pool boy fucked and killed those dead rats. I feel like that's heavily implied. Yeah. <laughs> the, the hot mom is like, is he putting he puts the rats in his toolbox? Why is he taking the why is he taking the dead rats home? Yeah, he's gonna go. He's gonna fuck yeah, them. There was a there was a cut short story that was even too craven for the editors where that pool boy fucked and killed those. Yeah, it would still not be the worst uh, sexual encounter involving a rat in the Are works of Brett Easton Ellis, and I don't want to elaborate on Are that. Are you fucking kidding me? But listen me? to the American Psycho episode to get them deets, oh, baby. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's really the worst thing I've ever read in my I'm whole life. I'm going to fold into a cube like when you crush a car at the junkyard. But what else is there to do? Oh. Um. All right. Uh... We're running a little long. How are you doing on time? Okay, so real quick, on the most recent episode as of this recording of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, um, he was talking to author Dennis Cooper, and he out kind of out of nowhere was like, "What do you think about like Kevin Spacey and and Brian Singer and and like do you do you feel like 
uh, do you feel like it's a witch hunt or whatever? And Dennis Cooper, who he was talking to, had sort of a non-committal answer that was also shitty. He was just like, oh, I don't feel like we really get all the facts. So, you know, I'm just an outside observer. I don't really have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Whatever. And Brett famously has put Brian Singer on blast for being a boy fucker <laughs> for years. Um, but now that I guess we're all putting Brian Singer on blast for being a boy fucker. Mm. Um, it is no, Brett no longer thinks it's cool, and Brett wants to go against, uh, against oh, the crowd. Yeah. So Brett... Really, <laughs> so, really establishing yeah. himself as a person with principles whose entire political belief system is not based on <laughs> reactionary bullshit. Yeah. yeah. So Brett, after Brett said this, I turned off the podcast because I was so skewed out, but he was like... Is there no accountability for like the 17 year old boys? Like, what do they expect if they're getting flown away by Brian Singer? Like, is there no responsibility on their ha- like, you know, a 17 year old isn't like a child. Like, you're, you're smart enough to know that something's going to happen. And it was uh, very gross. Mm. And yeah. this is a thing that he keeps hitting on. He keeps bringing this up kind of out of nowhere of like, a 17-year-old who has an unwanted sexual encounter, like, they needed to do a better job of protecting themselves. That's unbelievably disgusting. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I mean, like, honestly, this really doubly speaks to the fact that Brett has no fucking clue what he's talking about when he invokes stuff like that. He doesn't understand the power dynamics. He just knows that it happens because he's an idiot. Uh, and a barely perceptive one, apparently. Those scenarios, there is a power differential set up. Specifically, I mean, like, Brian Singer used his position as a director who is somebody who must, must be accountable because his whole fucking job is to direct and control people. And so he innate... That is baked into the job, is that you have power over every fucking other person. You're the boss. So... When you're a young person, especially somebody who doesn't understand uh, the world and sexuality, and maybe even your own sexuality, uh, and there are a million pressures upon you, especially uh, uh, being a raised man, um, there's so many forces that are screaming at you to fuck. Everyone's constantly telling you to fuck and making fun of you for not fucking. Um... And it's, it is fucking ludicrous to suggest that a person who is an adult and has independence and autonomy uh, uh, can, or it, 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 like, that they are not savvy to this shit. Like, there's a documentary about that that came out, like, a decade ago, I want to say. Really? I yeah. didn't know that. Jesus it's called Christ. An Open Secret. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've known that Brian Singer is a pedophile for a very long time. Oh, wow. And people have talked about that for a very long time. Um, but people just don't talk about it, you know? Like, eh, the the whole witch hunt thing is, is such a, and is so indicative of the, the point of view he's speaking from. I don't know, that's my, that's my piece on that, is that like, Obviously, it's fucked up. And even if it's not something between like a uh, director and a a uh, young person, a young actor, it can also just be like an older person and a younger person. And it's still wrong. It's still wrong. And the older person is, uh, e- and even even if it's unwilling, 
or uh, unwitting rather that that is a that is a behavior that should be immediately self-examined because it is preying on a young person and then excised from your behavioral repertoire if i see brett easton ellis <laughs> which could happen does he live in la yeah okay i'm gonna throw rocks at him. <laughs> i think that's fair brett i think that's fair given <sighs> yeah you know i like like even though brett says his shitty stuff that he says i still like have just such a fondness for him overall but like the way that he talks about sexual abuse and survivors of sexual abuse and sexual harassment is like the one thing that keeps like pushing me like i'm mm-hmm. like do i can i like this guy but he's it's really like yeah he he needs to examine his yeah. worldview on this and not to and not to speculate too much about who he is but like he he's a he's a gay man who has talked very explicitly about like having sex with women and like a woman having sex with a or or just somebody having sex with somebody who is not attracted to them but doesn't know because because society is terrible and and forces people into the closet i feel like that is an unfortunate cuz like that is that is traumatic for the the individual who is not attracted to the other person um and i could understand how that would especially living so long like that how that might affect his views of of consent because that mm-hmm. is a complicated thing and i i feel like that is a situation where the 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 lines are grayed where if especially if like the person who is attracted to the other person does not know that the attraction is not mutual mm-hmm. because the other person cannot express that lack of attraction for whatever reason that that is like a that is that is one of those like weird cases where it's like this is this is traumatic sex and the lines of consent are blurred but nobody is particularly like an evil that mm-hmm. there is like societal problems with that and i i wonder if that has like affected his ability to perceive the nuances of consent um that's really interesting maybe but but also at the same time doesn't fucking excuse that shit you know <laughs> like don't hey everybody let's let's all not defend people who rape kids you know yeah. like let's hey let's 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 fucking take brian singer out in the back and like <laughs> just yeah. fucking kick sand in his teeth yeah your contrarianism should only go so far like yeah. it should stop at the point where you're like mm, was that 17 year old really raped like, yeah you're, if you're Christ. saying that then you've gone too far yeah all right well this was a bummer but i'm <laughs> glad we talked about it oh man yeah <laughs> um I feel I just feel like every time Brett's shitty, I have to explicitly point out that he's shitty so that I'm not by I'm not like de facto supporting him by hosting this podcast. Um, complicated. Complicated Absolutely. man, and yet in some other ways very simple. Uh, all right. Let's lighten our moods with some recommendations. Uh, every episode I like to let my listeners balance out their literary diet by suggesting a book to them written by somebody who is not a white man. Uh, my guest is welcome to suggest whatever book they would like to. Um, and my suggestion this week is Magic for Beginners by Kelly Link, which is probably my second favorite short story collection of all time after Labyrinths by Jorge Luis Borges. It's a kind of modern magical realism slash 
fabulism collection of stories that blend, you know, what magical realism <laughs> is, <laughs> blend the fanciful with the everyday. Um, and reading this collection of short stories for the first time, I was it was really a big moment for me. It was like the first time that I opened a book and I was like, this is exactly what I want to be writing. Like, I feel like this was written by the me from the best timeline. It's a, and it, her, her stories are like scary, but they're funny, but they're sad. They just like encapsulate everything. Um, and some of them are more way out there than others. Some of them are, you know, basically said in our world, but there's got a little something off. Um, there's one story that is about the apocalypse and goes entirely backwards. Um, which is maybe my favorite thing that I've ever read. Um, and she, uh, she, she's great. She's wonderful. Uh, and it's a perfect book. Magic for Beginners by Kelly Link. Uh, my recommendation is actually uh, uh, local to the network. Everybody should read uh, Run in the Blood by A.E. Ross. They are one of the two co-hosts of The Double X-Files, another podcast on the network that everybody should check out. Um, it is a, it is a queer fantasy novel that is, that is an an erotic fantasy novel. I, I, I have to say I'm not very far. I actually have not finished it yet. I have enjoyed what I've read. I have not gotten fully deep into the like sexy, sexy parts, but like there is, there is a clear undercurrent of like, uh, uh, queer attraction that I'm a huge fan of and, and, and. Frankly, Allison is an extremely talented writer. This is this is their debut novel. It's quite good. Uh, I, I could never write a book. I could never write a novel. I I just don't have the 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 patience or the the I don't have the brain for it. I would forget things constantly and make an incomprehensible story. Allison is an extremely talented writer. Read their read their novel, Run in the Blood. All right. You can get it on ninestarpress.com. Very nice. I'll have to read that. I did not know that they wrote a novel. Yeah, absolutely. It just came out. It released, I want to say, mid to late 2018. Fantastic. Very exciting. Uh, Thomas, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Um, I already talked about my podcasts. Mm -hmm. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at Thomas Lockney, L-O-U-G-H-N-E-Y. And let's just name drop those podcasts one more time so people don't have to scroll all the way back. Media majors. Love it. We are experts. Haven't listened yet. King me. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there anything else that I do? Oh, I also write about video games um, and just the culture. Uh, That can be found on uh, nakedcriticism.com. Very nice. I like to end every episode with one of Brett's vintage tweets. Uh, Brett used to be an extremely active Twitter user, but he sadly is no longer. Um, but in the in probably the, best <laughs> for him. Probably for the best. Yeah, God. Oh <laughs> At least oh now man. his rants have to go through like an audio editor. <laughs> Could you fucking imagine? Oh man, no. I wish he was on Twitter now because right? he would just he would get eviscerated by everyone because he'd be like, I think it's okay to fuck kids maybe and everybody would be like what are you talking about uh (laughs) back back in the heyday of his twitter uh he he used to name drop 
celebs a bunch. So up to now I've been doing um, some of his some of his classic celeb oh, name man. drops. But I'm going to switch gears now. He also went through a thing of talking about his much younger boyfriend, um, referring to him as the 26 year old. And then there was a birth- then there was a birthday and he started calling him the 27 year old. Still gross. <laughs> They're still together now on his podcast. He refers to him as the millennial because it's not fun to say the 32 year old. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to pull out one of these vintage 26 year old tweets. Oh man, that that good, good millennial <laughs> pussy. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so this I'm is- sorry, I'm sure Brady Snellis is boyfriend is his own person <laughs> more than a millennial bussy <laughs> I, I, I don't know missy <laughs> um brady Snellis's boyfriend todd you're welcome on my podcast anytime <laughs> <Come on> down, <laughs> todd. yeah right. harvey will fucking eat you alive he will. harvey would fuck todd's shit up harvey come here feel like todd would not want to be in a room with me, at the very <laughs> least. Probably would have some issues. I did threaten to throw rocks at his boyfriend. I mean, I feel like his boyfriend's gotten such worse threats that throwing rocks is not even going to register. Probably not, yeah. Okay, so here's a vintage, uh, a vintage boyfriend tweet from January 31st, 2013. The 26-year-old, no car or health insurance, can't get a job at Chipotle, mangles hallelujah for YouTube video, grins and tells me, YOLO. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Uh, gotta go make fun of my bussy. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Katie L. Wright. And check out some of the other amazing programming here on the Major Cast Network.